You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The day started like many others, a warm 73 degrees with partly cloudy skies. Civilians were going about their early Sunday morning routines when the dive bomber appeared, the first of 200. At 8.10 that morning, an 1,800-pound bomb landed on the USS Arizona. The explosion sank the ship, trapping its thousand men on board. More Japanese planes flew overhead, darkening the skies. The USS Oklahoma took several hits from torpedoes. The battleship rolled to one side, then slid beneath the water, along with 400 men. Beth Slingerland, a teacher with a husband in the military, watched the planes descend. Black smoke billowed into the air as the aircraft kept dropping bombs. Fireballs appeared over the hangars at the airfield. She could do nothing except worry and wait. Army Air Corpsman Everest Capra knew they were under attack as soon as he saw the planes. He ran outside to warn the others, then hurried back to the barracks just as the bombs and bullets started. He and a couple of other men dodged enemy fire while gathering the injured and taking them to the hospital. An explosion knocked Capra out. When he awoke, he refused to head to the hospital himself, knowing the Japanese would strike there too. Despite his injuries, he continued to help others. Honorary Chaplain Joe Morgan at first took shelter under an I-beam inside a hangar and hoped for the best. Outside, crew members with nothing other than handguns took to shooting at the planes. Morgan went to the armory and grabbed a machine gun. Then he fought back. The U.S. had tried to stay out of the war responding to Japan's invasions and atrocities with sanctions. Japan hoped this attack would prevent the U.S. from intervening in their aggressive expansion in the South Pacific. For two hours, the assault continued. Every battleship in Pearl Harbor was damaged. Over 300 planes and hangars and on the airfield were destroyed. Wives waited on word about their husbands. Children waited for their fathers. 
At five that evening, Beth heard her husband's boots on the driveway. They were fortunate. 2,500 people died, and another thousand were injured. Aboard the Arizona, there were 38 sets of brothers. 63 of the 79 men died. Those 400 men remain buried in the harbor with the Oklahoma. 900 are interred in the Arizona. Pearl Harbor became a memorial. Though the U.S. Navy didn't know when or where Japan would attack, tensions had risen significantly before Pearl Harbor, and intel suggested an aggression was imminent. After the attack, life for everyone on the Hawaiian Islands changed. The people had been through changes before, though. Before Japan's assault, the islands and their peoples found themselves under another threat. Long before that first plane flew into Pearl Harbor, for many Hawaiians, paradise had already been lost. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Thirty million years ago, the Pacific tectonic plate shifted, forming a chain of islands right near the center, about as far from anywhere else as you can get. The volcanic eruptions created 137 islands in the area, including what are considered the eight major ones today, Maui, Kaho'olawe, Molokai, Lanai, Oahu, Kauai, Nihau, and Hawaii, often referred to as the Big Island. While there are many volcanoes on the islands, only six remain active today, a two on Maui and the other four on Hawaii. The largest, Mauna Loa, located on the Big Island, stands 9,000 feet tall. The first Polynesian settlers arrived in Hawaii around 400 CE, having traveled thousands of miles in big canoes with the stars and elements as their guide. They settled down, building new homes. Life near the ocean was comfortable. What the ocean didn't provide, small farms did. They and other groups of Polynesian settlers who came over the next few centuries brought crops like taro, breadfruit, bamboo, and sugarcane, and domesticated animals like chicken and pigs. The settlements spread across the major islands from their lush windward sides to their lean leeward sides as technology and trade systems advanced. Starting around the 1300s, the population boomed and sort of congealed. Large temples appeared. A complex and efficient society evolved. A high chief controlled the land, holding it in trust for the population and supervising its divisions. A whole island, known as a mokupuni, was split into smaller parts called moku, which were themselves divided into ahupua'a, each one a wedge stretching from central mountains to the sea. The size of each ahupua'a depended on the available resources. The poorer areas were the largest ahupua'a, which helped offset having fewer resources. The chiefs ruled each self-sustaining section. Taxes were paid to the high chief and his court through konohiki, or supervisors, who oversaw the communal labor and fair use of the land and ocean. The people traded goods with other villagers. The inlanders provided the fishermen with wood for their canoes in exchange for fresh fish. Everyone tended to the farms and livestock. And though people lived in different ahupua'a, they shared knowledge and labor. The Hawaiians lived in peace with the land believing in the deep connection between nature and humanity. Along with the Konohiki, a kahuna, who could be considered priests or cultural experts, ensured that the people took great care of the land, its resources, and all the life that resided within it. Some species of fish were taken only during certain times of the year. Plants were only harvested during certain seasons. 
All in all, they'd created a harmonious and sustainable life. The Hawaiians made everything they needed, from beautiful cloth and handcrafted canoes to exquisite arts and crafts. They used roots and vegetables to dye clothing and wore flowers for scent. For sports, they held athletic competitions. They feasted and danced and sang, told stories and played music. Powers within the groups changed from time to time as chieftains vied for more control, mostly though they lived in peace with each other through the 1700s. Captain James Cook became the first European to make contact. He stumbled across the Hawaiian Islands in January of 1778. At first, the locals welcomed Cook and his crew. He brought iron tools, which they traded for fresh water and food during his brief visit. A year later, his return to the island of Hawaii happened to coincide with a harvest festival there and the celebration of a god's return. It's hard to tease out legend from history, but it seems that some Hawaiians associated Cook with this god. A cook and the crew joined in the feasts and dancing that lasted a few days. They left the island shortly afterward, though a storm forced them to return. Their reappearance sparked suspicion. This wasn't part of the myth. Tensions escalated. Cook determined that the Hawaiians had stolen items from him and chose to deliver swift and harsh punishment. He might have thought these people whom he considered inferior would cower. They did not. Angry over Cook's accusations and violence, warriors overwhelmed the British sailors. Most managed to escape, though Captain Cook was captured and killed. In retaliation, the sailors fired their cannons on the shoreline, killing 30 Hawaiians before heading back out to sea. It was just the beginning of Hawaii's contact with Europeans. By the turn of the century, the islands were an established port of call for ships trading in goods like furs and sandalwood as part of the increasingly global economy. And, unfortunately, Cook's bloody skirmish set the tone of what was to come. Between 1791 and 1810, a chief by the name of Kamehameha united the islands and became the first king of this unified kingdom of Hawaii. Though he died in 1819, his title and leadership fell to his family for generations. It was a time of cultural upheaval from inside and out. The new generation of Hawaiians was becoming acquainted with more outsiders, this time from the newly formed United States. At first, their contact with Americans came in the form of merchants. Whalers followed, then missionaries, determined to save souls. With their faith and Bibles, they brought something else to the islands. Diseases that decimated the local population. Americans pushed westward spurred by the government's assurance that taking land inhabited by indigenous peoples was acceptable, especially those who didn't submit to becoming what they called civilized. Missionaries and colonizing farmers created many changes within Hawaiian culture. On September 2nd of 1838, a group had gathered outside one of the grass huts along Puuaina, a volcanic crater on Oahu that the Westerners called the Punch Bowl. Inside the hut, a woman labored, just as the baby girl entered the world, rain began to fall. To the people, the rainfall seemed like nature had joined in the celebration. Her parents were well-respected and shared lineage with Kamehameha I. They named their daughter Liliu. The people thought great things were in store for the child. They weren't wrong. Her position and rank climbed shortly after her birth, when her parents sent her to live with other, higher-ranking family members. 
The custom, known as hnai, is meant to strengthen family bonds. While the new family took over raising Liliu, her birth parents still had a say in what was best for her. The missionaries thought the practice was barbaric, and they aimed to save the indigenous people's souls by doing away with such traditional Hawaiian practices. By the time Liliu turned two, the monarchy the Kamehameha I once built had begun to crumble. Americans and Europeans kept arriving and carving out territories. The churches, homes, and sugarcane fields cropped up, and the missionaries baptized Liliu and called her Lydia. After her fourth birthday, Liliu was sent to a missionary school. To civilize the indigenous children, the founders allowed only short and infrequent visits with their families. Native customs weren't allowed. Their attire was deemed overtly sexual, so students' clothing reflected a more European style of dress. While the children were allowed to learn to speak, read, and write in Hawaiian, they were also given traditional European courses and Christian religious teachings. King Kamehameha III sent emissaries to France, England, and the United States to establish his position and Hawaiian sovereignty. He succeeded in 1842, though it would not last. Foreign powers began to eye the islands for themselves. Disease, potential threats from the West, and an attempted attack from the British became the backdrop for Liliu's childhood. Approximately 300,000 indigenous people had lived on the islands when Cook first arrived. By 1853, only 70,000 remained. Kamehameha III died from smallpox in 1854. Liliu's older brothers, uh, Princes Alexander Liholiho and Lot Kamehameha, became King Kamehameha IV and V, respectively. Both were against American annexation. Liliu, now an adult, watched the proceedings within the king's court. With her lineage, she'd been groomed to rule. After Kamehameha III died, she met with the surviving king's advisor, John Owen Dominus, in 1860. Two years later, the pair married. The marriage turned sour when John fathered a child with one of Liliu's servants. She busied herself with charity projects and political matters. Though a woman, her lineage made her opinion equally valued. In 1873, King Kamehameha V died, leaving no heirs. The Hawaiian constitution called for an election. Kamehameha IV's widow, Queen Emma, and Liliu's brother, David Kalakoa, were their choices. David won the election. King Kalakoa remained childless, and Liliu became the heir presumptive. From then on, people referred to her as Princess Liliu Kalani. Meanwhile, sugarcane and pineapple production companies, owned by colonists, pushed for more power over the royal family. Along with the princess's new status came more responsibility, and she had more say when it came to political matters and acted as regent whenever King Kalakoa traveled. The times had become uneasy, though. Queen Emma's supporters looked for ways to move her back into power, and American plantation owners sought to remove all authority from the Hawaiian government. Princess Liliu Kalani stayed busy with speeches, handling the smallpox epidemic, and the logistics of a leprosy hospital in Kaka'ako. She funded a bank for women and a school to educate young women. In a time when women had few rights and fewer options, the princess and her sister were exceptions. Married women weren't allowed to own land, and their husbands managed all of their business affairs, 
but the sisters maintained control of their finances and business decisions. Lilio Kalani visited England in 1887 for Queen Victoria's Jubilee. Buckingham Palace treated her as a monarch equal to their own. During the trip, she received word of a coup back in Hawaii. Armed plantation owners had forced their way onto King Kalakoa's property. They made him sign over power from the monarchy through the threat of death, granting voting rights to non-native landowning colonists. The document they drafted also granted the United States control over Pearl Harbor. This document granted more commercial rights to plantation owners, reduced the right to vote for lower-income native Hawaiians, and excluded Asian immigrants who had come to work the plantations. With his signature, three out of four native Hawaiians lost their right to vote. It's been nicknamed the Bayonet Constitution because it was signed at gunpoint. Liliu Kalani returned to find her brother in ailing health. Still, he traveled to the U.S. to discuss a tariff that had severely hindered the sugar industry. He died in San Francisco on January 20th of 1891. News of his death didn't reach the islands until the ship returned a week later. The Hawaiians held a traditional funeral ritual and crowned Liliu Kalani on January 29th. She became Hawaii's first ruling queen. For the next few weeks, she remained in mourning for her brother. Afterward, she sought to return the power that had been stolen from the monarchy. The battle took two years. She planned to reinstate her people into control over both politics and the Hawaiian economy. The plantation owners took to the press in a smear campaign. None of it fazed her, and she pushed forward. A tragedy struck again when her husband, who was also Oahu's governor, died on August 27, 1891. While the two didn't have a good marriage, he had supported his wife's endeavors. The plantation owners, including one Sanford B. Dole, worried a return to the monarchy would affect their profits. Aside from being a landowner, Dole was a lawyer who had been appointed as an associate justice on the Hawaiian Supreme Court. Sanford's cousin, James, owned the Dole Food Company, and both men had a substantial interest in keeping Hawaiian land in American control and both men had plenty of power. Sanford was part of a clan of businessmen called the Committee of Safety, who, in January of 1893, plotted a coup. Their leader, politician and lawyer Lauren A. Thurston, set to work. They gained support from other U.S. politicians and the captain of a U.S. warship anchored in Honolulu Harbor. By January 14th of that year, Lilio Kalani had received over 6,500 signatures to repeal the document her brother had been forced to sign, and she proposed a new constitution. But all was not as it seemed. One of her ministers made a copy of the new constitution and sent it to Thurston. By January 16th, the Committee of Safety held a public meeting to denounce the queen. Some of her council fled the palace, fearing for their safety. Outside, indigenous Hawaiians gathered. They were tired of foreign powers buying off their officials and thwarting the Queen's efforts. 162 U.S. sailors and Marines arrived that day to support the coup. The Hawaiian attempts to resolve the conflict with negotiation failed. The next day, Thurston and his men gathered outside the courthouse, demanding that the Queen step down. He declared martial law and for the Queen to be removed. The remaining council advised her to surrender control to the U.S. government instead of the committee. It should be noted that the plantation owners were American, 
but that the U.S. government didn't officially sanction the coup. By midnight, Lilio Kulani had signed over her control to what she thought was the United States, though she had been betrayed once more. Sanford Dole became the head of the new government. He immediately pushed to have Hawaii annexed. In February of 1893, President Benjamin Harrison agreed. When Grover Cleveland took office a month later, he ordered an investigation. The commissioner reported what had happened and that the people supported the queen, not Sanford's government. Cleveland ordered that Lilio Kalani be reinstated, but only if she granted amnesty to those involved with the coup. Dole refused to hand over his power, even when Lilio Kalani agreed. President Cleveland didn't intervene, and Sanford Dole proclaimed himself president of the newly formed Republic of Hawaii. Paradise had been forcefully taken, and without help from President Cleveland, Hawaii no longer belonged to the indigenous people, and without voting rights, they had no means to get it back. In December of 1893, Congress realized they had a problem that allowed American citizens to overthrow a foreign government and had taken control by threat of war. Dole clung to his ill-begotten power. While Congress talked about justice, the indigenous people felt, by 1895, they'd waited long enough for the president to act. Hawaiian royalists plotted to take back control. Their rebellion failed. Dole's government had the rebels and the queen arrested for treason. The Republic offered her a deal. Abdicate and save the lives of six of her people who faced a death sentence. She agreed and was heavily fined and sentenced to five years of hard labor. Afterward, she remained under house arrest. A year later, Dole announced that he had generously pardoned the Liukulani. Without any children of her own, she traveled to Washington with her niece, whom she designated as her heir. Her attempts to convince the president to restore Hawaii's independence failed. The United States annexed Hawaii in 1898 under the McKinley administration and treated it as a U.S. territory. Hawaii became the 50th U.S. state in 1959. Congress offered a formal apology to Hawaiians in 1993. Today, Native Hawaiians remain the only indigenous people in the United States to not have political sovereignty. A tourism flourished when Hawaii became a state. Air travel made it easier for the middle class to visit. Tourism outstripped both the pineapple and sugar industries in terms of income. Hotels, shops, high-rises, and golf courses have cropped up, and the beaches are crowded. While it's still a paradise, there is a debate over whose paradise. A one cultural icon from the past remains strong, though. The song Aloha Oi is still sung today and has been recorded by many musicians. It's a song of farewell and the hopes for reunion. As the story behind the melody goes, it was written in the late 1870s. A young woman had taken a trip on horseback with a group of others at a ranch belonging to Colonel James Boyd. At the end of the ride, she watched as he and a close friend shared an embrace and a passionate kiss. The lovers parted reluctantly. The longing and affection shared between the two inspired the young woman to write the words to the melody that we all know today. Years later, she would sing the song again when control over Hawaii was stripped from her people. That woman was none other than Queen Liliu Kalani. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. 
I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Very few came to the peninsula, at least willingly. King Kamehameha V's law went into effect on January 3rd of 1865, and families were ripped apart. Surrounded by rough seas and steep sea cliffs, the topography of the peninsula of Kalaupapa on the island of Molokai lent itself to seclusion. Yet there are long stretches of sandy beaches. While it was, and still is, a natural paradise, Hawaii's fifth-largest island housed a leper colony in the 1800s. Humans have been afflicted with leprosy for millennia. The disease is often disfiguring, causing sores, Internally, it causes nerve damage. Though not the most contagious, a repeated exposure raises the risk. When it first appeared in early history, people believed the disease was a curse or punishment from the gods. Others thought leprosy was hereditary and shunned entire families if one member fell ill. Research suggests that leprosy, now known to be caused by bacteria called Mycobacterium leprae, has been around since humans have been human. It's followed routes of migration and trade and war for over 40,000 years. Until 1940, there was no cure or effective treatment. In medieval Europe, those afflicted often walked on a different side of the road than others, or rang a bell or wore clothing to warn others to keep their distance. Mostly, though, people were quarantined for life. This is where the island of Molokai comes in. No one knows when leprosy was introduced to Hawaii. It may have arrived multiple times. But starting in the 1820s, European missionaries began reporting leprosy-like symptoms on the islands. And by the 1860s, with the population growing through immigration and colonization, it was considered enough of a problem that Kamehameha V and his Board of Health passed the act to prevent the spread of leprosy. It created a policy of permanent segregation that would send over 8,000 people with leprosy to live out their lives on Kalaupapa Peninsula on Molokai. Hawaiians sometimes called it the disease that separates families, and children fell victim to it more often than adults. One Father Damon saw his calling on the island. In 1858, he and his brother were part of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary in Belgium. His brother had been asked to go to Hawaii, but fell ill. Damien took his place. He first arrived in 1863, and ministered to the people on the Big Island for ten years, 
until the colony on Molokai needed help. He and three other priests alternated caring for those sent to live on the peninsula. He traveled to the island by boat, along with cattle and 50 patients. The colony petitioned to have a full-time priest live with them, and Father Damon never hesitated. He wrote to his superiors that he would not be leaving the island. The people needed him. They'd come to the island expecting the worst, and feeling they'd been sent there to die. Father Damon became determined to give them a place to live. He learned their language and helped build homes. Together with the patients, he planted gardens and trees. He organized schools for the children when he wasn't busy tending to residents' medical needs. The children enjoyed the usual things they'd had on the big island, like bands and choirs. And when people died, he helped bury them. He returned to the big island to campaign for more funding. He relentlessly championed better conditions, more supplies and clothing. His tireless work attracted worldwide attention, shedding light on leprosy and the colony on Molokai. For 12 years, he lived with the people on Molokai before he contracted leprosy himself. The health board certified him as an inmate on March 30th of 1886. Though he could no longer leave the island, he stated that he was with his people and happy. The disease caught up with him three years later, and he died at the age of 49 on April 15th of 1889. The colony, the Kingdom of Hawaii, and the world mourned his death. In 2009, Father Damon was named the patron saint of people with leprosy. Today, leprosy is more commonly called Hansen's disease. It's now relatively rare, as there are treatments and a cure, courses of antibiotics and steroids. Although the forced relocation of people with leprosy to Molokai ended in the 1960s, freeing the population there, six or so of the last survivors still choose to make the island home. Of all the islands, Molokai is said to retain much of its original beauty and indigenous roots. The people who live there celebrate their connection with nature. The land, or aina, is so important to Hawaiians that they believe it should be treated with the utmost respect. For every commercial city full of hustle, bustle, and modern ways of life, there are places where nature and the aina remain relatively untouched. Guides still navigate by the stars like their ancestors. At night, there are celebrations with food, music, and dancing. Residents and visitors are frequently moved to say that places like Kalaupapa on Molokai are paradise found. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Alexandra Steed, and produced by Jesse Funk and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. And special thanks to Elijah McShane. To learn more about the show, visit grimandmild.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com you deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybretza.com.